The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to this special Christmas edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I would like to be able to tell you that we're joining you from the post-Christmas debris of our respective homes, but we are in fact recording this a couple of days before the holiday break, so do forgive us if any of our comments have been superseded by unexpected or dramatic events. But be of good cheer for today is our traditional seasonal Ask Me Anything show where you get to ask the questions and I have a nice crop of those questions in front of me here. Here to answer them to the best of their abilities is our crack political team of Pat Leahy, Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones. Season's greetings to you all. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Christmas, Hugh. (laughs) Let's get straight into it, shall we? I've got a question here. It's from Tom O'Connor in Greystones and it runs as follows. With Micheál Martin due to step down as Taoiseach in 2022 and Leo Varadkar due to take over, what is the panel's view on the likelihood of Fianna Fáil backbenchers giving Martin the heave-ho in favour of a Sinn Féin-friendly leader or pulling the plug on the coalition, prompting an election and then going into government with Sinn Féin? Uh, I'd like to just break down that question a tiny bit first, if I may, Pat, and to start with, uh, what is the chances of a, he- of, of a heave against Micheál Martin before we consider any p- potential further ramifications of it? I, I think, Hugh, that this broad question and the uh, the several questions that it begets will be increasingly important in political debate uh, over the over the next year, and by the end of the year, we'll probably come to dominate it. I suspect when we are talking uh, at this time next year, uh, similarly, uh, God willing. Um, that we'll be talking, our first question will be about this next year as well. Um, so do I think there's going to be a heave against uh, Michal Martin? Uh, I don't expect that to happen because I think that it is likely, notwithstanding everything he understandably says at the moment about continuing as Tornishta and leading the party into the next general election, I don't think he will do that. And I think it is likely that he doesn't expect to do that either. So I would be surprised if at some stage in the second half of the year, or maybe even before that, Micheál Martin doesn't indicate that he, uh, what he intends to do about the succession. I suspect he will try and manage that process in the period after he becomes Tornishta, which is, I think, uh, the 15th of... uh, the 15th of December next year laid down in the programme for government. But of course, the programme for government doesn't lay down that Micheál Martin will become Tornishta. It lays down that the leader of Fianna Fáil will become Tornishta. We spent a fair bit of time over the summer talking about the uh, future leadership of, uh, of Fianna Fáil. And it is undoubtedly the case that many of Micheál Martin's TDs are anxious to see uh, a change in leadership when he uh, when he ceases to be Taoiseach. I think that the agreement that the party sort of made with itself uh, after that period of 
uh, after that 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 period of unrest, and which culminated, I suppose, in the party's thinking in September in uh, in in Cavan, was that Michal Martin would continue as leader until he steps down as Tanishta. But I expect that there will be a succession process after that. Exactly what shape that takes, um, I, I I don't really I don't really know yet. But I find it difficult to believe that um, that that Michal Martin would remain on uh, as leader uh, as as Tanishta and lead his party in to the next election. I don't think that is the expectation. I, I, I'm pretty sure that that is, it is the determination of a chunk of the party that that won't happen, and it is the expectation of the sort of middle ground in his parliamentary party that that uh, that that won't happen. So, Jen, if you accept that analysis, which I do, well, then there arises perhaps some questions about about sequencing, um, that there might be some element of flagging, that uh, that that a resignation might be might happen in early twenty twenty three, for example, without officially stating it, and then you would have you would have a leadership election within within Fianna Fáil, all framed around this unprecedented political moment in the history of the state, which is this agreement between the two main parties in government to share the Taoiseach ship. We've never had that before, and so there are opportunities there for slip-ups and cock-ups and all kinds of problems. How likely are we to get a smooth transition if the transition in Fianna Fáil leadership, which Pat describes, is going to ha- is going to happen? Or how high is the chance of something going wrong along the way? Oh, the chances are always high of something going wrong along the way. It's it's Irish politics, um, politics generally. But I actually think my, my instinct is that people might be surprised by how much it goes off without fanfare, um, provided, uh, obviously, that there aren't some massive landmines along the way. And I'm thinking, obviously, of the current, the ongoing investigation uh, into into Leo Varadkar. Um, obviously, that will be something that hangs over the entire process next year, especially if it drags into next year, which it shows all the indications of doing. Um, now, there is this expectation in Fine Gael and in politics that that investigate that the investigation will conclude in a way that isn't harmful towards uh, him and uh, in, politically in his career, but we just don't know. So we'll have to wait and see kind of what impact that has on the whole process at next year. I know Michal Martin in recent days was saying to journalists that you know you shouldn't view this transition as being a big deal. It's already kind of said and it's already preordained. We already know kind of what the process will be. We know what the date will be, as Pat has as outlined. Um, I think the interesting thing will be, like you said, what that does in terms of the Fianna Fáil leadership race. Like, does that reignite the conversations that have been going on? Because it has kind of died down a little bit. If you remember back um, before, just before the vaccine rollout, there was all this talk uh, internally in the party and lots of chatter about how his future as leader of Fianna Fáil was somewhat dependent or interlinked with the role, successful rollout of the vaccination campaign. And we know now we've had one of the most successful rollouts uh, of any vaccination campaign um, in, in the EU. So obviously that that being as it was, I think that kind of chatter did die down. So, you know, what what's the next stage of that then? I mean, and it would seem to me that that changeover is the ideal time um, for TDs who fancy themselves in, in, Fianna, in Fianna Fáil as potential future leaders to have that conversation. They're quiet now. They're talking about just getting on with the job, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always there simmering under the surface. I would agree with Pat, though. I wouldn't see it happening kind of immediately around that time. I think that the next 
leader would be the would be basically the person who leads Fianna Fáil into the next election. Um, and they would hopefully, they would be hoping to kind of go in on their own slate and their own platform, their own policies. Um, and I can't see that kind of being early 2023. But then again, who knows? And a last thought on this question, Jack. Um, will a, a Fianna Fáil leadership election and a new Fianna Fáil leader necessarily or quite possibly destabilise the coalition because perhaps of promises, commitments or positions taken by that new leader in winning that particular election? I think that it, it will certainly be a kind of a set piece for political jeopardy around um, the, the the survival of the coalition and not necessarily because of any one factor, um, even though the, the biggest and most obvious thing that changes around that time will be the role of Tarnishdown, the leader of one of the larger uh, governing parties, but just because of the confluence of events. I mean, they're, they're, there's one big thing happening then, but you'll, you'll also have a reshuffle around the same time. There will be many different moving parts for the incoming Fianna Fáil leader to manage and also for the returning Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, to manage as well. So I think that without pointing to any one particular issue that might or might not be problematic and prove to be a stumbling block for the survival of the coalition through that period. I think just the confluence of of many things happening at the same time increases the likelihood that one thing could go wrong and kind of snowball and you could end up you know, collapsing the coalition uh, by by accident. Now, I, again, I I think that's probably on balance unlikely, and um, because at that stage, if the two coalition par- parties sit down and say to themselves, "Look, we have made it this far, and we have made it through," you know, the the, the guts of a of a pandemic and certainly four or five waves of disease and and various other challenges, we may as well knuckle down uh, and get through the second half of this coalition. Governments tend not to collapse the themselves. And, you know, given the the wider volatility and uncertainty that is at play in Irish politics, you know, what would those cabinet ministers be giving up their positions in favour of? You know, there's no clear shot to nothing, you know, easy easy road to government and retaining that cabinet position um, post an election. So, you know, I think that the, the, the propensity of governments to to prolong their own lives and to keep themselves alive, I think will will override all those risk factors. But there will be a multiplicity of risk factors at that time. Okay, I have a related question. It's a multi-part question, and we're going to do something somewhat different. It's going to be a rapid fire round. Um, I'm going to put each part of it to a different person. Twenty seconds. You have twenty seconds to answer each part of this. Uh, the question comes to Richard Column via Twitter, and he asks us to name the next party leader for Sinn Fein, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, all the rest of them, and the timelines for change. Richard doesn't think there will be changes next year, but he suspects that Boris Johnson didn't think he'd be on the hot seat either. He points out. So I'm going to go around them very fast. Jen, Sinn Féin, the next, uh, the next leader and how long will it take to have a next leader? Piers Doherty and I would say five years. Um, yeah. Uh, Pat, Fine Gael. Um, I suspect it will take uh, f- four, three, three years, three to four years, Simon Harris. Okay, Jack, Fianna Fáil. Um, I suspect it'll be... 2022 or 2023, and uh, there's no standout candidate, but if I had to back one, I would say Jim McCallan. Jen, the Social Democrats? Oh, <laughs> I would say uh, 2024 and Gary Gannon. Okay, uh, Pat, the Labour Party? Um, um, after two elections and... Phew, I mean... 
Jed Nash. <laughs> and Jack, the Green Party. I would say it'll be after the next election. Um, and I, I can't. I still can't look much past Catherine Martin, to be honest. Very good. Well, thank you for that. We'll move on to the next question. It comes from Evan Byrne. Throughout the pandemic, public health advisors have risen to public prominence, um, advising on how to manage the response to COVID-19. But in Ireland and elsewhere, this advice has seemed at times to be very out of touch, if not downright incomprehensible. For example, Neffet's recent suggestion to close pubs and restaurants at 5pm. The models that they have used have sometimes been wrong, sometimes very wrong, um, which damages their credibility. And uh, as a general rule, public health officials tend to only seem the issue through the single lens, which is COVID, COVID cases and so on, even though the pandemic has affected all areas of life and restrictions have caused damage to other aspects of our life, our society and our economy. As these are unaffected, unelected officials, are there accountability issues? And are we getting to the point where, as Michael Gove famously put it, people have had enough of experts? Thanks. So, Jan, have people had enough of experts? Um, I, look, I think the relationship between public health and government and the public has never been uh, more under scrutiny than it is at the moment because we've had two years um, of the pandemic. I think people are exhausted and I think we're moving into a stage now where the automatic response isn't and cannot be lockdown. So that being said, I think it's completely natural for people to be, I suppose, more sceptical um, about, you know, actions by public health experts and, and, and by their deliberations. I think we're seeing that now. I think we're hearing a lot more people kind of questioning the Neffet's modelling in particular and pointing out that much of their modelling in the past uh, has proven to be incorrect, to, to put it bluntly. Um, and I think that that's it's no bad thing to have that in a healthy democracy, you know, and that that should that should be guarded. Having said that, I think one thing that's interesting to keep an eye on is the research that the Department of Health carries out um, every week. I think it is with a Moroc, and what they look at is the public's kind of mood. Um, they look at kind of the public's acceptance of restrictions, what they would like, <clears throat> excuse me, what they would like to see happening next. And there was research published yesterday um, about, you know, the previous week. And it shows that people are kind of at the moment split down the middle and it's kind of like 43, 45, um, about for and against further restrictions being imposed. And and that people are kind of somewhere in the middle about that we're taking the right course of action at the middle. And what that says to me is that I think generally speaking, the vast majority of people um, when they see case numbers increasing or when they see this the situation deteriorating, they do very much um, pay heed to what the public health experts say. Of course, there is that frustration and of course there is that exhaustion. But I think it's very telling to kind of see those statistics. Um, I don't think people are kind of done with experts. I think people are just weary um, of hearing the same thing. But I do also agree with, the, I think, the point that was made in that question, which is that the Neffet in particular only see things through one prism, and that is, uh, you know, public health. They don't see, they don't analyse or weigh up the impact on the economy or the impact on people's mental health. But that's not their job as well. You know, their job is literally to advise and to protect public health. And it is the job of government to decide. And it's the job of government to put into context all those other considerations. And I, I think it was interesting when I was kind of do, working on a piece recently on Neffet that um, someone who I was talking to, who's very involved kind of with both sides, government and, and, and Neffet, pointed out that there's no plan B 
for um, taking advice. There's no alternative Neffet in the offing. Like we will be hearing from Neffet necessarily for quite some time to come. So if people are weary now, let's just wait and see how everyone feels when we're still talking about this next spring. Although, Jack, there was talk only a couple of months ago about disbanding Neffet or that it wouldn't be required to operate in the same way. And obviously that talk has disappeared now in in recent weeks and months. This dialectic which Jen describes, where on the one hand, Neffet puts forward uh, really, really rigorous restrictions and the government pushes back to some extent. And then we end up with some, I don't know if it's a middle way, but some ameliorated version. And then that a very important point, which he makes as well, about the, 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 the split in the public uh, mood and the kind of the, the, the general approach to this. That's all very well up to a point, it seems to be a point in moments of crisis as we're having this Christmas with the arrival of Omicron. It seems to get much more problematic when we end up with a country which seems now, we've had nearly two years of this, seems inclined to end up with heavier restrictions for a longer period of time than nearly every other European country. That might be a valid question to ask about whether there's something we haven't been doing right there and maybe you need to take that bear that in mind as we go into 2022. Yeah, um I think the difference between this this Christmas and last Christmas is that there's not actually that much divergence um between the public health advice and and, and the policy position that the government has taken even though there was a very ugly blow up at the start of this month um when <clears throat> when Neffet or rather government felt uh, surprised by Neffet's advices and and there were various allegations of leaking and, and briefing. And this kind of uh, what seems to have been a relatively short-lived gagging order over the uh, the members of Nefesh and their their forays into the media. Um, so I think that like while it's clear that um, the government certainly isn't particularly beloved of its um, beloved with its with its public health advisors at the moment, uh, that had the, the the relationship hasn't kind of broken down to the same extent that it did at different parts across twenty twenty. Um, the difficulty is, I suppose, that uh, we're heading into a period with the disease um, where, you know, outcomes are a lot less certain and the the, the direction of travel has changed. Um, and, and those tend to be more difficult and tricky times for that relationship. And they do prompt, I think, a valid wider re-examination of just how it is we make pandemic policy in this country. If if you take a step back from it and you know you look at just the pure mechanics of this process, whereby the 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 boffins, the public health people, the doctors go into a room and in conclave, you know, concoct what could be described as a kind of a, a bomb that it's going to pass the government, and no one really knows what they're working on, and the government gets it at very short notice, and then is asked to under great public scrutiny amid a lot of leaking going on on both sides, you know, devise a, a policy position which you know satisfies the public health goals and outcomes while also keeping on board various stakeholders and the public and their own backbenchers. That's an absolutely insane way of making policy. It really is, and and it's it's a, it's an insane way of making any any policy, but it's a particularly insane way of making. Uh, making policy around, you know, the single most important policy question that this government has or will face, which is the pandemic. So I do think there needs to be a wider interrogation of, of how we do this. And I do think at times over the last year, over 2021, there has actually been a better way of doing it, which has involved more dialogue between all those various moving parts, the public health team, the civil service and the government. But that seems to, to, to have broken down as the pandemic has erupted and moved to a more dangerous place. So I do think that, you know, we, we have to get to a better place of making making pandemic policy in, in 2022 because it doesn't look like um, COVID is going anywhere anytime soon and it looks like we're going to be 
heading into a period of, you know, I would imagine four to eight weeks of of, of very uh, severe pressure on on the healthcare system and um, a lot of a lot of misery, you know. So coming out the other side of that, I think we have to think about how we do things better. I mean, Pat, the the, the report card on Ireland's treatment of of COVID is mixed, and there are some things that have gone very uh, very well, particularly the vaccination program and and a number of other things, and the overall mortality rate compares relatively favourably. I think it's it's fair to say with with with, with some other countries. Uh, but what Jack describes there is a problem, isn't it? And there is a criticism that um, while it, while dealing with emergencies relatively well, the state as a whole, the government as a whole, has not been so good at putting better structures in place for longer term strategic planning, uh, dealing with COVID over one year, two years, three years, maybe four years. Yeah, well, we've discussed here before that more broad criticism of the policymaking process is that it tends to do crises well, but long-term planning for things which, you know, to coin a phrase, might be, you know, known unknowns, uh, tends to be lacking in detail and foresight and comprehensiveness. And I I think we've seen that in a boiled-down form during uh, during the pandemic. I think you're right, you know, when you say that things, really important indicators like the mortality rate and when the history of this period comes to be written, I, I think we will pay more attention to that rather, you know, than to things like, you know, the tensions between government and NEFED. And by comparison with places like the UK, our mortality rate and particularly our excess mortality rate is, uh, is, is pretty good. That having been said, I think there's probably a greater tolerance for a higher mortality rate kind of bluntly in exchange for greater freedoms um, or fewer restrictions uh, in, uh, in, in the UK. And that's one of the differences, I think, that has marked the approach in the, in the two jurisdictions. The relationship between government and NEFED is still not good, as the lads have uh, outlined. They are on the one page, basically, at the moment. And we saw for the first time in a long time, Tony Houlihan at last week's press conference coming in and sharing the uh, uh, sharing the platform with the Taoiseach and the Taunishta. But there's no doubt that government has, on a number of recent occasions, felt ambushed by NEFED. And the view in government is that NEFED are seeking to bounce them into uh, tougher restrictions. And there is also a view there that NEFED uh, doesn't take a broader view, not just of what, you know, of, of the policy making imperatives, but a broader view of public health. So that things like a very long lockdown that has very detrimental effects on many people's mental health, that's a part of public health considerations uh, as well. Particularly when you, you know, when you look at, uh, uh, when, you know, when you look at school going children who have, uh, you know, been out of school for an awful long time. That is, in the view of many people in government, a public health issue as well, that the public health advisors have failed to take sufficient account of because they are overly concerned to the exclusion of all else 
with things like case numbers and, hospi- uh, and hospitalizations. And there have been a number of attempts by government, you know, to take these considerations into account in the policymaking process. But when you're in a crisis, and we're in a crisis right now, when you have like something like the Omicron variant, then all that tends to go out the window and people are concerned, uh, understandably, I guess, with the situation in the hospitals and with case numbers. But I expect you'll see that once this wave passes, you'll see those things come to the fore again in uh, in the policymaking process. We have uh, another question in. It's from Kevin, who's in Seattle. I understand that Sinn Féin has an Ard Carla, but I don't really understand what that means and why it's controversial. Is this related to Sinn Féin being the only major party that I can see that has both Chakdalas and... Assembly members, thank you. Okay, thanks for that, Kevin. It's um, it's great to hear from listeners from around the world. We need to be cognizant sometimes when we're going doing our sort of inside baseball analysis of what's happening in Irish political parties that people may not be up to speed on on what's going on at those parties. Uh, I mean, Jennifer, the art core of Sinn Féin is that's not an uncommon structure for a political party that it has a sort of a um, a, a kind of a central council that runs the party. Other parties have that. I'm I, I'm I'm going to guess that Kevin is. Possibly also confusing that with some of the some of the reports that we've seen over many many years now that there is that there's another group of people who have a say into the running of Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin strategy in addition to the Ard Corla as well as questions about the way in which democracy works inside Sinn Féin itself. Lots of questions, really. Yeah, lots lots of questions, lots of questions. Um, I'll pick which ones I know the answer to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, per- perhaps perhaps referring to the Army Council, but but in fairness, the question does reference. Yard Corla, and I think Sinn Fein, uh, especially during the last election, uh, twenty twenty, um, which feels like fifty five million years ago, they were a pains to point out that they, you know, the Yard Corla, they said it's no different to the governing body of any of the other political parties, um, or unions or organisations, etc. Um, and they say that the kind of the Yard Corla is just part of that kind of governance set piece that, that, that other parties have. And they say that their policies are, you know, published and that their public representatives are the ones who, who set those policies and put them into place. But, you know, I think the critics of, of Sinn Féin have kind of pointed out that it is quite different. I mean, I remember a quote given by Pater Tobin, um, I think it was January 2020, where he said that Sinn Féin TDs are not permitted uh, to choose their own staff members. He talked about how uh, TDs, the, the key policy decisions that are made, that they're made by like a handful of people, six or seven people, and that those policies are, de- are then handed down to TDs. And this kind of ignited that debate around where is policy set, where is power centralised uh, within Sinn Féin. And I think, you know, I remember Mary Lou MacDonald kind of being on the radio and saying that there are Corla similar to kind of Fianna Fáil's situation. And then Fianna Fáil coming out and saying that that's not the case, that their policy is actually set by their parliamentary party and that they take guidance from people in the constituency and that they come together as a PP, as a parliamentary party, and that's where they agree the policy and, and set it out. And they would kind of say that the difference with Sinn Féin is that it's very centrally controlled and that those directions about policy being set and also coming from unelected um, officials. And I think that that kind of 
is at the, the heart of the difference between perhaps the two. Um, also, what I would say is I remember Pat had a story during the election about how Mary Lou MacDonald and other members of Sinn Féin signed a pledge. And this basically would guys, tell the candidates they had to be guided by the instructions from that ruling body. Um, and this was kind of in contrast to Mary Lou MacDonald constantly saying, she still says it, um, that she doesn't take directions or instructions from anybody. Um, and I think that that kind of really put the issue centre focus again, particularly after what came out during the Cash for Ash inquiry um, about the Sinn Féin's Minister for Finance asking for permission from like really uh, senior unelected figures uh, linked to the party before actually going ahead and, and, and making those decisions. And that, you know, that came out in the course of that inquiry um, and perhaps was not expected by those parties to have, to have come out. And all of those things, I think, have put the focus on the fact that people do believe in, in politics that Sinn Féin's or Corla is different. Um, and parties that have been accused of having a similar structure have said, well, actually, Sinn Féin sets their policy centrally away from the parliamentary party. Our policy originates from the parliamentary party. What should we make of this, Jack, now? This has been a continuing sort of under rumbling undercurrent theme in political analysis of, of Sinn Féin ever since it started making um, electoral gains more than 20 years ago now. And the party is very different from what it was in the 1990s. But in some people's eyes, those questions, some of them still remain unanswered about who really runs the party and how it's run. Yeah, and I'm, I'm reminded of um, a series of stories that, that we ran uh I think it was actually after the last election, but only very shortly, <clears throat> only very shortly after the last election, about the views within the PSNI and then laterally within the Gardaí over the interaction between the Iron Council and, and, and Sinn Féin and, and the view within the PSNI that there is still um, a, a large degree of control and influence exerted by the former over the latter. Um, and it, it's interesting that uh, that emerged, and just reading the story here, kind of towards the end of February, so after the February 8th election in 2020. But I think it speaks to a wider a wider truth that, that Sinn Féin have to address or have to be cognizant of, um, which is that around election time, this is going to be the stick that is used to beat them. Um, and there seems to be a large degree of credibility attached to it, at least by the security forces uh, on both sides of the border that runs there in this island. Um, and And credibly addressing this issue, uh, engaging with it, um, will be, I think, an important part of translating the the upsurge in Sinn Féin support, which has been strong across, which is now strong, rather, across all age cohorts and income deciles into uh, concrete and retained electoral success um, in the middle part of this decade. Uh, so, you know, they, they have to have a strategy on this. It has to be credible, it has to be realistic, because I think that it is one of those things that the parties of the political mainstream will use to beat up on them. And I think that it is one of those things that if the mainstream is successful in those endeavours, stands a good chance of alienating voters when push comes to shove on election day. I wonder though, Pat, do they have to address it? We do have a kind of related question here, uh, which is from Michael Ryan, and he asks, why is there so little scrutiny in Dublin media of the COVID response policies Sinn Féin takes in the North, as they are the main opposition policies, that's in the South? It would seem to make uh, lots of sense for the media to examine how they react to COVID when they have the power to do so. While they are, of course, constrained in government by working with the DUP, their state 
rigid policy preferences get no scrutiny at all from the from from the media and in, and in fact there has been a little bit more looking at divergences between Sinn Féin policies north and south over the over the the last few weeks pat on a range of issues including including abortion for for example and it seems to me that that might be one of the themes which emerges over the next couple of years. Sinn Féin, the most popular party, according to opinion polls, both north and south, running for elections in both jurisdictions at some point over the next over the next three years or so. And it's difficult to ride those two bicycles at the same time. And there are political opportunities for Sinn Féin's appoint, uh, opponents to point out divergences. Yeah, and yet divergences pointed at in recent weeks... Uh, uh, as you rightly say, involve abortion and somewhat oddly fox hunting. But uh, I can't see fox hunting being a huge issue come the next election. But I do think that Sinn Féin will face more scrutiny. Uh, and I actually wrote about this after the last uh, election, that they will face more scrutiny given their leadership of the opposition and now their enhanced popularity and the presumption in Leinster House by shared by just about everybody you meet there that Sinn Féin will be in government after uh, the next election. So it would be natural for uh, the party, I think, to face more scrutiny here. And an element of that will be an examination of their performance in government uh, in the North. But there's also reasons why there hasn't been that much scrutiny of that in the Southern media, um, if, if I can call it that, uh, so far. And that's because of the fact of partition. You know, you, you, you can dislike partition all, all you like, but you can't really dispute that it has become a fact on the ground. And there is a different polity in the North with its own rather contrived rules designed to overcome the sectarianism that marked the entire existence of that state and to overcome the conflict that sprang from that uh, sectarianism. And that just isn't a feature of, uh, of life in the South. So the North is a a peculiar polity for particular reasons, but it's also a very separate polity to the North with its own media, with its own public debate. And frankly, there is a limited interest amongst many Southern voters about what goes on in the North. And all of us who work uh, in uh, in the media know that. That having been said, I think you will see um, I, I think you will see further and enhanced scrutiny of Sinn Féin, not just its policies that it proposes for uh, for implementation in government in Dublin, but also its performance in government in the north. I suppose the two jurisdictions thing is very uh, particular to Sinn Féin at, at the moment, Jennifer. But some of these problems are the problems of success of a party which grows very rapidly and now encompasses people who might actually, whose views might be very different. Somebody who votes for Owen O'Brien in Dublin West may have a range of very different views on social issues and other questions than somebody who votes for a Sinn Féin MLA in rural Tyrone. Um, and sooner or later, particularly when you get into power, um, those differences can start becoming a problem. I'm so sorry, Hugh. I don't know what you mean. I'm God, sorry. Poor, poor Jen's got the brain fog. <laughs> Please help me. And this is the first time I've ever just been like, what? 
No, you're absolutely right. It's a totally garbled <laughs> question. I'm, just to, I'm throwing it in the bin. As, I'm sorry, as, you. I'm sorry. It's, it's not you. It's me. I swear. It's not you. It's me. No, it's, it's definitely like, me. It's definitely what? me. It's definitely me. <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in, Declan. <laughs> I feel like that with most of his questions. <laughs> oh, not able. oh, fuck off. Can I give you, can I give you, can I give you the, 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 yeah, the civilization of that question? Yeah. I mean, okay. I'll try okay. again. I mean, the fact is, Jen, Sinn Féin is now a very big party and its voters include people who might have entirely different views. You know, somebody who votes for Ono Brin in Dublin Midwest might have very different views on abortion and a range of other things than somebody who votes for a Sinn Féin MLA in rural Tyrone, for example. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the issues that are of most importance in two jurisdictions are completely different. I was so interested when we were running our series, which we're currently running at the moment still, on housing and on rent. And uh, I think Freya McClements was looking at kind of what it takes to kind of buy a house uh, in Northern Ireland versus what it takes to buy a house down here. And the difference is just incredible. I mean, the kind of mortgage that you can get uh, in Belfast, uh, you know, it will be completely unthinkable, uh, kind of actually anywhere in Ireland at this stage now, given the increase in prices outside of Dublin, what with COVID having changed, how people are, you know, deciding to live and work from home and whatnot. So those kind of issues, you know, that sort of access to services, that sort of quality of life issues, they'll be different uh, on both sides of the border. And I think, look, it's really obvious. And we've said it a million times because it's true. Uh, Sinn Féin's rise in popularity, partly, but a big part of it has been down to the uh, housing crisis and the fact that they have made really big promises about what they would deliver. And um, they've been very strong on it. Ono Brain obviously knows a lot of detail about it uh, and they're very convincing on it. And, you know, even it, it stacks up in the figures when we, when we break them down in the polls that that is where a lot of their uh, support's coming from, though I know now they are uh, kind of increasing their appeal beyond kind of their those initial target audiences and, and beyond their core kind of working class uh, vote. So I think that, yeah, you're completely right. The issues that matter to people uh, in Dublin will be completely different to the issues that matter to people in Belfast. So they have to have kind of that dual, that dual message. Uh, and I agree with Pat as well. Like there is a limited, um, it, there will always be interest, of course, but not in the same way that there is for the issues uh, for a voter in Waterford or Cork or Limerick. We'll move on to another question. I'm going to put this one to you, Jack. Rory O'Callaghan uh, um, sent in an email saying, we've yet to see the rise of any far-right populist party in Ireland, and it's probably naive in the extreme to assume that's because of some exceptional characteristic of the Irish electorate. My theory, says Rory, has always been that it's because it gets an outlet in the larger parties at a local level, for example, in opposition to direct provision centres and traveller accommodation, often associated with dog-whistle tropes like local services for local people. Given that Fianna Fáil are the largest party of local government, is there a danger that a disastrous general election for them could leave a number of councillors with no viable long-term home or even just precipitate a rightward shift by the party as a whole? And this would see the emergence of the right-wing populism that seems to be a hallmark of Western democracies at the moment. So I suppose what's being suggested there by by Rory is that there is scope for a kind of a gilet jaune shift to the right, which we have seen. We've seen it right now, for example, in France, if pressure continues on Fianna Fáil. Do you see any chance of that? Um, not really. That's not to say I don't see the, the, the logic of the question. I think it's a good question. And, and you know, it, it's one that I think perhaps some elements within Fianna Fáil may be asking themselves, either subconsciously or consciously. I think that one of the kind of under-catered for um, 
constituencies in Irish politics is probably, uh, I think to call it reactionary probably would be a little bit unfair, but like, you know, traditionalist or something like that. You know, and I'm not sure that there's a, a party that really um, speaks to that traditionalist vote. And, and you know, I think that perhaps a lot of the, the independents in the current doll mop up those votes. So could Fianna Fáil reverse themselves into that electoral space um, and would that be a wise thing to do? Um, I think I think it probably could, and it's one of the ways that the the party could go. But I'm not sure that it's a, it, I'm not sure it's a clear route to electoral success, or I'm not sure. More importantly, it answers any of the kind of fundamental questions of relevance, direction, and ideology that 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 Fianna Fáil has to figure out for itself about itself for you know for for its next phase. Um, you know, like would would it just be able to quickly metamorphosize itself into a right-wing populist party you know I, I don't see large elements of the parliamentary party going with it on that you know there's you could name any number of of senators or tds who would feel instinctively uncomfortable with that and also i, I i'm not sure that like a large percentage of the fianna fall uh voting base would go with them on that because while they may be more traditional and more rural and more conservative leaning i'm not sure that it's an an automatic outcome that they would happily pick up the uh the trappings of right wing populism of you know that kind of energetic reactionary form of right wing populism that we've seen in many many advanced democracies in recent years you know these uh, these are voters who i think probably in the round um you know, wouldn't like. I'm not sure the the kind of anti elitism thing would would appeal to them. I'd say they probably believe more or less in the institutions of the state. So I think they're probably broadly constitutional. So I don't think that you know, I don't think that that it's a clear and obvious thing for Fianna Fáil to do. You know, I think there there is a wider question as to whether right wing populism will emerge in Ireland, and if so, what the vehicle for that will be. Uh, I think on balance, it probably won't. Um, but if it were to do so. Uh, would Fianna Fáil necessarily be the vehicle for that? I don't think so, no. We have one last question. It's from Thomas Hennahan. Hi, so my question is on Shannon reform. Um, considering that there's two bills before the Shannon at the moment and the government put them essentially put them on hold um, last year to be dealt with again in early 2022, do you think that will actually happen next year or do you think Shannon reform will just never happen? I'm delighted to get this question in because Declan, our producer, was very keen that we not cover it. He, his eyes glaze over rapidly at the mention of Shannon reform. But I think it's a bloody outrage. I know I've said it on this this podcast before. And I kind of get depressed at the kind of snorting and chuckling that Shannon reform, it's like draining the Shannon or something. It's like a running joke in Irish politics. Um, I just think it's a bloody outrage that they haven't sorted out this crap years ago after endless promises God knows how many committees of investigation and parliamentary debates, and it still squats there as a carbuncle on Irish democracy because it's in the interest of the people who hold the reins of power and they don't want to do anything about it. What do you think? I look forward to answering this question again next year when no doubt it will come up and you can have your little rant there and you can say it's an outrage and do you think it'll be dealt with next year in 2023, Pat? I'll say, no, Hugh. I don't think that's going to happen next year again. And then we can all go and have our mince pies. 
On that happy note, we will leave it there because that is it for today and indeed for the year. Thanks very much indeed to Pat, to Jen and to Jack for their contributions, not just today, but over the length of 2021. And thanks also to the many other Irish Times journalists and indeed the many fascinating guests who we've had over the past 12 months. Thanks also to the Irish Times podcast team of Declan Conlon, Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan and to JJ Vernon, who is the rock upon which these podcasts are built. We're going to be back in the first week of January, raring to go. But until then, goodbye and a very, very happy new year.